You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual The deep state, man, the deep state goes deep and the deep state does not fuck around. The deep state is so all-powerful, so omniscient, so all-knowing that they, whoever they are, all those deep state and staters out there, they somehow knew that an assistant wrestling coach at a state university would one day be elected to Congress as a conservative Republican and that this assistant wrestling coach who would Go on to co-found the far, far, far right House Freedom Caucus. Something else the deep state somehow knew would happen, that this assistant wrestling coach would play an important role in protecting Donald J. Trump from being held accountable for colluding with the Russians and stealing a U.S. election. I'm referring, of course, to Representative Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio. He has been leading the charge on Capitol Hill to run Defense for Donald Trump, attacking Mueller, attacking Rod Rosenstein, speaking darkly of the deep state conspiracy to remove Donald Trump from office. And now the deep state has turned its attentions to Jordan. The deep state has taken Jordan down or trying to. It goes like this. See, Jordan used to be a wrestling coach, and during Jim Jordan's tenure as the assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State University from 1986 to 1994, The team's doctor, a dead dude, died in 2005 named Richard Strauss. That doctor was molesting student-athlete wrestlers. It was an open, not-at-all-secret secret. Ohio State is now in the middle of conducting an investigation, and Jordan has been accused by nine of his former wrestlers of knowing about the molestations, knowing about the sexual predation, knowing about the doctor, and doing nothing about it. Apparently, when this team doctor wasn't performing unnecessary testicular exams, a student would come in with a jammed thumb and Strauss would insist on doing a spot check slash grope for hernias. The doctor was also showering with the students, some days, multiple times. As one former wrestler told the Washington Post, Jordan definitely knew that these things were happening, most definitely. It was there. He knew about it because it was an everyday occurrence. Now, Jordan denied knowing anything at first. Then, after the number of former wrestlers willing to go on the record began to creep nearer to the double digits, Jordan revised his statement. Sure, he'd heard rumors, but he'd never actually seen anything with his own eyes other than the team's doctor showering with his male athletes multiple times a day. And what did he hear? Oh, just locker room talk. Conversations in a locker room are a lot different than allegations of abuse, Jordan told Fox News. He had some conversations in a locker room. Jordan sauntered with his players, but not one of his players formally, quote, reported the abuse to Jordan. A sweaty teenage boy in a towel and a sauna telling you he's being sexually assaulted by one of your coworkers? Doesn't count. Top hat and tails, boys, or it doesn't count. Because if someone tells you they're being abused in a locker room, not an allegation. Because locker rooms, at least the ones where Republicans hang out, are magical places where no one means what they say. You don't even have to be in a locker room to benefit from locker room privilege. When Donald Trump bragged about sexually assaulting women, the infamous pussy-grabbing tape, he was on a bus. But it was just locker room talk. 
Because a locker room, the Republican locker room, is as much a state of mind as it is a physical location. Anyway, the right-wing conspiracy theorists are hard at work blaming Jordan's troubles on the deep state. Decades ago, the deep state somehow knew this obscure assistant wrestling coach at a state university would be elected to Congress and play an important role in protecting a corrupt Republican president. So the deep state placed a sexual predator in that same locker room and counted on Jordan to say and do nothing about it when he was told by half-naked, sweaty teenage boys in a sauna that this was happening so that one day the deep state could spring this on Jordan years later in an effort to prevent Jordan from protecting Trump. So the all-knowing, all-powerful deep state could see Donald Trump coming and knew they'd have to take down Jim Jordan to get Donald Trump But somehow this same deep state and all these deep staters weren't all-knowing and all-powerful enough to prevent Donald Trump from happening in the first place. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your Q's, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show and no ads. Sophie Lucido Johnson, author of the new book, Many Love, joins us to talk polyamory. That's in the Magnum. All of that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I am a cis female living in a major East Coast city. I have a question about anal. Um, My partner and I had a son about a year and a half ago. And during birth, I, you know, was sort of injured and had a fissure. And it took me about six to eight months to heal after that. Um, So we used to love anal and haven't done that since we had our baby. And so I'm calling to see if you have any advice about sort of getting back into that mentally, physically. I guess I'm just sort of worried about getting injured again. And I I even asked my doctor about it and she was sort of like, yeah, I mean, you should be fine. But I don't know. I think it's just psychological Anyway, any advice would be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Congratulations first on the birth of your son. Sorry to hear about the tearing of your anus during birth, uh, that fissure. Fissures are extremely painful. Some folks, they take a very long time to heal. People can have internal fissures on their internal sphincter. Yeah, fissures are kind of a nightmare. But once they've healed up, you are pretty much good to go again. And according to my physician, no likelier to get another fissure for having had a fissure in the past than someone who's never had a fissure before. Some people, however, are prone to fissures. I don't think getting one fissure during childbirth is evidence that you are prone to fissures. That is traumatic. If you have fissure problems, if you're prone to fissures, it probably means you need to lubricate more. Even when you're not using your anus for play, you probably need to moisturize and lubricate. Fissures happen most often to holes that are dry or too dry or not wet or not lubricated enough or stretched too quickly without enough lube. So this is largely, as you correctly identify, caller, kind of a psychological hang-up. You're worried. You're nervous. And rightly so. A fissure is fucking painful. So what you want to do to get back into anal play is ease into it slowly. What you did, hopefully, the first time you began to explore anal play. You didn't go from never having put anything up your butt before to a dick slamming in and out of your butt two minutes later, you engage in anal stimulation and anal play and anal pleasure without going right to anal penetration. If you didn't do it that way the first time, that's the way you should have done it. That's the way I recommend people generally do it when they start out with anal play. Don't start with penetration, start with play. 
So for you, caller, what I would recommend is get a vibrator. Do some rimming. Do things that aren't penetration but are pleasurable. And have a few orgasms while you're doing non-penetrative anal stimulation and play to make a new association, to carve a new groove, a new neural pathway that tells your brain, despite the fear and terror and pain of the fissure months, that we are in a new butt era, an era of butt pleasure. And then gradually ease back up to penetration. Not dick at first. Start with a toy, a butt plug, a vibrating butt plug, something that you can set and forget, and then do the other things that you enjoy with your husband and continue to reinforce that message for the reptile part of your brain that we are returning to the days when when my butt was a playground and not a crisis in the ER. Hey, Dan. 20-something from the West Coast. I have a question about open relationships. My partner and I are in a committed monogamous relationship. He's about 20 years older than me and is open to the idea of bringing in a unicorn. Even with the slight mention of allowing us to bring in a guy or even a couple, he shuts it down immediately. When I voice my opinion on that not being equal, he says he would rather us just forget about it altogether. He's been hurt in the past by a girlfriend cheating on him, so psychologically I understand why he's sensitive to this. I just feel like I owe it to myself to explore my sexuality and to not look back and have regrets later in life. I don't think it's right for him to want me to have a woman ready to fuck him anytime he wants, but he's ready to break up if I even mention the opposite sex. I don't know if this is something that I want, but I want to feel like it's a safe place to explore the thoughts I'm having with my partner. Any advice on how to proceed? I'm not sure there's a proceed that will help you. This is an impasse. Somebody's going to have to pay the price of admission and it's going to have to be you if you want to stay in this relationship. Another dude in the bedroom is a hard and absolute limit for your partner. You can reason with him. Logic is on your side. Justice, cock justice is on your side. But if he can't go there, and a lot of guys in open relationships can't go there because of gay panic, because they are insecure. You know, people talk about women being the jealous ones and women being the insecure ones. And yet most open relationships where the couple is seeking a unicorn, the opposite sex straight couple is out there seeking a unicorn. It's girl unicorns only. Not because the girl in the relationship doesn't want to sit on another dick, but because the guy in the relationship is too insecure and too jealous. And yet we run around saying women are the insecure, jealous ones. And if we took just... Straight couples in open relationships seeking unicorns as a case study or an example would seem to indicate the opposite, that men are the jealous and insecure ones, at least when it comes to watching their partners sit on somebody else's dick. Sorry I can't offer you much constructive advice. If you throw down, have to be open to another dude as a price of admission, he's already told you that it's over. Either you have to close the relationship up again or end the relationship. So that's the price of admission he's demanding from you. If you throw down and say, we have to be open to a guy or I'm gone, well, then someone's going to have to call the other's bluff. Someone's going to have to be prepared to walk. So how bad do you want dudes to be considered for the unicorn position in your life? Do you want that badly enough? Do you want to explore your sexuality badly enough that you're willing to end this relationship in order to do so? That you framed it around your need to explore your sexuality in your mid-20s, which may mean if exploring your sexuality is really, really important to you and sleeping with other men in addition to your male partner, this male partner or another male partner to be named later, is really important to you, you may need to get out of this relationship. 
Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 21-year-old bisexual cisgendered male living in a metropolitan area in the southeast. And I'm struggling with a little bit of cognitive dissonance between my sex life and my personal life. In my personal life, I'm very committed to progressive politics and activism, pursuing a degree in college that would further that, have worked as an activist and for nonprofits and for political campaigns, um, and very strongly consider myself a feminist and obviously as a part of the queer community, someone who fights for those rights and for minority rights. In my sex life, I am really into, so I mostly sleep with women and um, more femme guys. I'm really into dominating my partner, degrading them, calling them bitch, slut, whore, choking them, spanking them, slapping them, tying them up. Generally being pretty misogynistic, maybe. I don't know if that would be misogynistic. And I'm feeling I'm feeling cognitive dissonance with that. All of my partners are progressive politically as well. Um, and this is something, you know, we, we talk about, what are you into? And then I kind of bring up the topic. Well, you know, I'm into degrading and, and more rough stuff. And they're into that as well. So it's consensual. still feel kind of weird and icky about it. I don't know if that's me being sex negative or what, but I would love to hear your take on it. I would refer you back to the interview we did uh, last week, I believe it was, with Justin Lay Miller. Tell Me What You Want is his new book. He's a sex researcher, uh, Indiana University, and writes a terrific column about sex. And during our conversation, we discussed, as we have frequently discussed on this program, that a lot of people have sexual fantasies that would seem to be in conflict with their politics with their feminism, with their gay pride, with whatever it is, and that this is not a bug in someone's feminism or someone's sex life, but it seems to be a hardwired feature that for a great many of us, when we get into bed, when we play, and sex is play, we enjoy transgression, transgressing not just against taboos or norms, but transgressing against the person that we genuinely and authentically are. In your case, progressive feminist dude turned on by misogynistic play with a consenting partner who enjoys it every bit as much as you do. And although you're 21, I'm going to assume you're good at this and you get specific consent every step of the way. There are some people who like to be dominated and call a slut and have, there are some people who like to be dominated and called slut, but do not like to have their faces slapped. There are some people who are into humiliation but not degradation or into degradation but not humiliation. And you have to learn the line between those things as you learn how to be the best top for a particular sub in a BDSM or DS encounter or relationship. And hopefully you're taking your time to get to know someone and you are using baby steps and your words and communicating, communicating, communicating so that you don't wind up in bed with someone who has consented to a rough outline of the rough sex that you enjoy and wind up traumatizing that person because you pull a specific move that you didn't negotiate with them and discuss, that's where you can get into trouble. You're not going to get into trouble being a feminist who's kinky. There are lots of feminist women out there who are kinky. One of the most common fantasies among women, we'd like to call it here on the show, ravishment. Not necessarily a rape fantasy, often called a rape fantasy out there in the world where someone fantasizes about being taken against their will. But of course, in a ravishment fantasy, you're being taken, quote unquote, against your will by someone that you would like to be taken by and overwhelmed by. 
And just as we can't say to all those feminist, strong, powerful women out there who, when they get into the bedroom, want to toy with, play with, pretend, cops and robbers for grown-ups with your pants off, pretend that they are slutty, submissive babes. We don't say to them that you can't be a feminist disqualified. Well, we also then on the flip side can't say that to men who examine their motives, who interrogate themselves to make sure that their kink isn't bleeding over into their politics or into the way they treat women or anyone else outside of a sexual encounter, a consensual sexual encounter that has been exhaustively negotiated. If it involves kink play, we don't, can't say to those guys, well, you can't be a feminist if you're into those things. If we're not saying to women, well, you can't be a feminist if you're into those things. Most of the people that I find who are saying you can't be a feminist if you're into those things are feminists who are into those things. It's not sex writers. It's not therapists or shrinks or counselors. This is a problem that people have with themselves because they think these are irreconcilable somehow. And in actual fact, they're very reconcilable. Because often, again, in bed, we want to be the opposite of who we are. We want to transgress against the self, the genuine, authentic self, and play at being someone else. You are not, if you're doing BDSM right, abusing anyone. You are doing with a woman something that woman would like to do with you. You are enjoying a little drama that you two created together that turns you both on, that gets you both off. And if you're thoughtful about compartmentalizing that, about consent, about respect, about boundaries, about not renegotiating in the middle of the scene. Please don't do that. If you're conscientious about respect, about consent, about boundaries, there's nothing unfeminist about the shit that you enjoy doing in bed with women who enjoy doing that shit with you. Hi, I was just calling because we've gotten three bad Supreme Court cases and I'm wondering how the hell do you deal with this? Like, I just paying attention to politics is making me crazy. And I have the privilege to be able to step out. It's not affecting me as much, but the union case, the Janice case, I was just curious, how do you deal with the insanity? Like, do you, have you drank yourself to death? Smoked yourself to death? Like, how do you cope? If you visit the Anne Frank museum in Amsterdam, the hiding place, the attic where Anne Frank and her family and another family hid from the Nazis until they were discovered, ratted out, you will see in the corner of the attic where Anne Frank's bed was on the wall over where her bed had been photos clipped out of magazines of movie stars. People need escape. People need fantasy. People particularly are in need of it in dire times. People didn't stop making art and music and theater. People didn't stop telling jokes during the second world war. People, even people in very dire circumstances continued to find pleasure and joy where they could. In fact, they needed to. And our circumstance at this moment does not compare to what the Jews of Europe were going through in the 1940s by any measure. Yet, I'm pivoting from Anne Frank to you gotta find joy and pleasure where you can for your sanity. And that is okay. And it is not a betrayal of the resistance. If every once in a while you need to step back from pussy hat knitting and marching and sign making and campaign contribution donation making and just take a night to get stoned and hang out with friends or have some wine and hang out with friends in a park and declare a moratorium on political conversations, which is difficult right now because somehow every conversation winds its way back to Trump at some point. Declare a moratorium on it. 
everyone in power to shut that down when that happens and focus on other shit. And that will revive you for the fight. So you're not walking away from the resistance when you do that thing, when you check out for a minute to recoup, to, to revive yourself, charge your batteries. You're preparing yourself to resist faster, longer, and harder tomorrow. So how am I keeping my sanity right now? Watching a little television. I'm smoking some pot every once in a while. We are having fags over to play cards with phones put away and conversation restricted to non-political topics. And it's working. Not that I'm distracted 24-7 from our national and international calamity, but I'm better prepared the next day to get up in the morning feeling empowered and charged up feeling like there's joy in my life. So my life is worth defending and fighting for. And I would recommend that all y'all do the same and don't let anybody guilt trip you. Oh my God, lefties and their guilt trips. How could you go see a movie at a time like this? How could you have joy or pleasure at a time like this? You must go see a movie at a time like this. You must take time out for joy and pleasure at a time like this, or you will not survive a time like this. Hi, Dan. Just calling with a a question about a long-distance relationship. I just got married in May of this year, and my partner and I were lucky enough to go on a quick honeymoon. We work in the the theater industry, Uh, so quick honeymoon, and then had to split up for seven weeks. He is in a living situation with a roommate, So we cannot have uh, phone sex or or even Skype very frequently. I'm just wondering what the best way to go is. He doesn't want me to use porn. He's not interested in having, again, the, like, phone sex or anything online because of his living situation. And it's seven weeks apart after just getting married. It's a... very difficult situation. I'm not quite sure what to do. Do what you got to do to stay married and stay sane. And if that means watching porn and then telling somebody, no, honey, of course I'm not watching porn, then watch a little porn and tell that person, no, honey, of course I'm not watching porn. I think that is a permissible little white lie. The deal, the only solution that works in a porn conflict relationship where one partner wants to watch porn or is watching a little porn and the other partner hates porn and doesn't want their partner watching porn and demands that their partner not watch porn is that the porn watching partner pretends that they don't watch porn, covers their tracks, makes a good faith conscientious effort to cover their tracks and their don't watch porn ever partner pretends to believe them when they say that they're not watching porn. And if that partner, the no porn partner stumbles over evidence every once in a very great while They have to give the porn-watching partner some credit for the effort that they went to to accommodate them. The effort that they made to cover their tracks was a form of consideration. So watch some fucking porn. And this excuse as to why he can't Skype with you? I've had roommates. I was never handcuffed to my roommates 24 hours a day. There was plenty of downtime and plenty of alone time. So I don't believe him when he says he doesn't want to do this because of the roommate. I think that's a dodge, but it's understandable. Rather than tell you I'm not going to do this because I'm not comfortable with it or I'm insecure. I have hang-ups because a lot of people don't want to admit to the hang-ups that they have rather than just being honest about them. He blames some outside force. Well, I would if I could, but I can't 
because I'm handcuffed 24 hours a day, fugitive style, to my roommate, which is not true. So he's lying to you. Just a little bit, little white lie, a little permissible dodge because he can't quite face up to discussing his hang-up with you. And I think you're allowed to tell a little white lie, a little dodge back at him. These seven weeks, honey, I am not watching porn. I promise you, I am not, not, not watching porn. And then delete your browser history seven weeks and a day from now. Hi, Dan, 25-year-old straight male in Little Rock. My girlfriend and I have been dating for like five years. And a couple years ago, we decided to try an open relationship. And that time, it was my idea. And I was not very good on following guidelines and was kind of not great. And so we ended up talking about it, ended up ending the openness of it, and then fast forward to now, and she's never dated anybody but me, and our relationship's been great up until now. You know? So she decided, she brought up the idea of a relationship, and at first I was like, oh yeah, you know, of course, whatever. So we started doing it, and then I started getting really jealous because she didn't see this guy, and our, but our sex life has been kind of in a lull, and when she sees me, I can tell she's like kind of like, not as excited to see me as she was before. And then I've also, like, been having a lot of anxiety about it recently. I've been kind of taking it out on her. I know that's been, like, driving a wedge between us, and I've been trying my best to, like, not take it out on her. And so an option, so she left for, like, a week to visit one of her friends out of town, and I kind of came up with the idea of either staying here and trying to work the problem out with her or potentially moving for a while and letting and giving her the space she needs it's been kind of difficult to give her space when we live together and whatnot, but also I don't want to, like, lose her. We talked about, like, living our lives together and whatnot, so, you know. Together since you were 20, 19 or 20, you opened the relationship a couple of years ago at your instigation. You promptly shat the bed, broke the rules, whatever they were, closed the relationship back up a couple of years ago, and now you're open again at her instigation. I don't think openness is always a sign of end times, but openness combined with contempt, openness combined with inconsideration, openness combined with the distinct feeling that you have been deprioritized or the distinct feeling that your partner is not as excited about seeing you as they used to be. Now, poly folks and people in open relationships talk about NRE, new relationship energy. And the question that you need to ask yourself is this feeling that you have where she's not as excited to see you as she is excited to see this other guy that she's dating, is that because she doesn't love you, doesn't want to be with you, isn't excited by you, or is it because your long-term five-year thing can't compete in the NRE department, new relationship energy department, with her new thing? Is she crushed out on this guy? Is she infatuated with this guy? Is she excited about him in a way that she once was excited about you and never ever will be excited about you again in the same way because you can't have NRE, new relationship energy, with somebody you've been with five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. If you can't handle being with someone who's NRE-ing all over the place, who's excited about this person, not just that they had sex with that one time because you're in an open relationship, but this person that they are dating and seeing because you're in a polyamorous relationship that allows for romantic connections. Maybe polyamory is wrong for you and maybe what your girlfriend and you are attempting right now isn't open, it's poly. And what you've learned about yourself, watching her date and be infatuated with and excited by this other guy in a way that she once was excited about you but never will be excited about you in the same way ever again is that poly's not right for you. Maybe openness is, 
Maybe you are capable of being open now that you're a little older, a little wiser, a little bit more mature without shitting the bed. But I think you and the girlfriend need to have a serious conversation about what you're doing here and what it means and whether you're misreading signals. Maybe she's not excited to see you because she's done. Or maybe she's not as excited to see you as she is to see him because NRE. And she's just as much in love with you now as she has ever been. Maybe she loves you more now because being in love with you and being committed to you means she can have you and have this too, which a lot of people in open and poly relationships talk about. That one of the benefits, one of the things that they're so grateful to their partners for in the long-term committed relationship is that they can have new loves and feel those feelings that people in monogamous committed closed relationships of many, many decades don't get to experience again and again and again unless they transgress, unless they cheat. And in the poly relationship that allows for it, you don't have to cheat to go have that feeling again. So I think you need to tap the brakes. I think you need to reconnect with your girlfriend. If this relationship is going to survive, you may even need to shut this thing down again until you're in a more secure place. And you're on the same page about what will work for you guys. And that might be open, which allows for sex with others, but not relationships with others. Not ongoing connections with others, not romances with others, or poly, which allows for all that and allows for NRE, which for some people in committed open relationships can be a little scary because it, indeed it is something that your partner will have with others that they once had with you, but will never have with you again. If that makes you jealous in a way that you can't handle, well, then you can't handle the poly. Hi, Dan. I am a uh, straight female uh, with a small family on the East Coast, and I was calling today because I had a question for you about um, another family we recently befriended. My husband and I are new to this very suburban landscape on the East Coast. We recently uh, moved away from Brooklyn, New York with our very two small children. Um, We have two under two, and we met this super great family through a uh, app for moms to find other other moms with similar age kids and interests. And over the last few months living here, we've really gotten close to this family, and they've been really wonderful. A couple weeks ago, they actually came out to us. They said since we'd been becoming better friends, they wanted to let us know that um, the dad was actually a transgendered man and had grown up female. And I guess they just wanted us to know because they didn't want to hide anything about their lives. And I thought that was really great. And we were really um, excited that they felt comfortable sharing that with us and that they wanted us to be a part of their family's story and kind of have a more honest friendship with us. And, you know, in coming out to us, they said, you know, if you have any questions, you know, about this, let us know. And I just felt really uncomfortable asking questions because I felt like, The questions I had were nobody's business but theirs. But every time we get together, I'm kind of looking for, like, an entry point to to ask some of the questions I have. Like, you know, I'm just curious, like, when did they, you know, meet? And was he transgender before they met? Or, I mean, like, had he, you know, identified as male before they met? When did she find out? Was that something, you know, like... And, you know, how did they choose to make their family? Because they have two small kids. And I don't know, I just, I do have all these questions, but I kind of feel like it's not my business. Do you think it's okay to ask, even though a couple weeks have gone by? Or should I just enjoy their friendship and let them open up to me about those things if they ever choose to? 
When you said that you had questions that you wanted to ask, but they seemed too personal, I thought you were going to cite, when you rattled off a couple of those questions, the questions that a lot of trans people object to being asked, which is questions about surgeries and bottom surgeries and the configuration of their genitalia and whether they kept what they had and changed everything else or whether they got what's commonly referred to as bottom surgery. That question offends a lot of transgender people because it reduces gender to genitals. And one of the lessons in the transgender experience is that ain't necessarily so. Genitals are not necessarily determinative. But then you rattled off the questions that you wish to ask this couple that you've gotten to know in your new community. Your kids are friends. And the questions that you tossed off, particularly the first one, is so innocuous. It's the kind of question that couples ask couples that they're getting to know all the time. When did you two meet? How did you two meet? Tell me about your love story. That's a really common topic of conversation when couples get really close. And I don't think you should shy away from asking that question. Or the other that you mentioned. When did you transition? Your new friend, this guy, told you that you could ask him anything. There are certainly trans people out there who object to being trans 101. This guy volunteered to be trans 101. I think you should take advantage. And you should say in advance, if you ask any question that he finds to be too personal, or you ask a question out of ignorance, that you hope he won't be angry and you hope he will educate you. And then have that convo. Have the convo that you were invited to have. And that first question, the first one that you can lead with, how did you two meet? When did you two fall in love? How did you make your family? That's the question you can ask any couple that you're getting to be friends with, trans or not. And you shouldn't be shy or self-conscious about asking those questions. Hey, Dan. I'm a 30-something married woman who is married to a bi man, and um, we explore outside of our marriage, but... um, We've slowly been finding more guys that are more willing to be with him more so than just me who happen to like be willing to be with a dude more than just a bi guy or a gay guy who's for him. But now we're coming around to that and I just am like for some reason like struggling with STDs of um, because I'm not in control and I'm worried like how they're handling it together and it like makes me nervous. So how can I like really let that guard down of being afraid after being in a long-term relationship where we were pretty monogamous and safe and opening it up? It just kind of was scary in the first place. But then now that it's him doing his own kind of thing, it just kind of makes me nervous. I mean, he's totally safe and he tells me that, but like it's the whole other person that I'm not interacting with as much. And I still interact. I don't know. I'm going to get in trouble for this one. There's no way to sugarcoat this. You are at greater risk of contracting an STI from your partner. You're in an open relationship. Setting aside the buy thing, you're in an open relationship. Your partner has outside sexual contacts. There's some studies out there that show that people in open relationships are no likelier to contract a sexually transmitted infection in the relationship than people in what were believed to be closed relationships, but often aren't closed relationships because one person is cheating. Saying monogamy out loud three times while looking in a mirror in a dark bathroom isn't magic and it won't protect you from contracting a sexually transmitted infection from your partner who has made a monogamous commitment that they are violating. That happens. It happens frequently. But 
Having said that, I don't want to sugarcoat this. You're at greater risk of contracting an STI because your husband has outside sexual contacts with other men. And I don't want to sugarcoat this either. There are higher rates of STIs, sexually transmitted infections, in the gay and bi-male communities than in the non-gay and non-bi-male communities. And that's just a fact. So when you say your partner is being safe, what does that mean? Is he on PrEP? A lot of people on PrEP aren't using condoms anymore with their partners because PrEP is incredibly effective protection against HIV infection. Offers no protection against syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, herpes, HPV. Is he using condoms? Great. Incredibly effective protection against HIV, very effective against chlamydia, very effective against syphilis and gonorrhea. Mildly effective, lowers the risk for herpes and HPV, but not by a lot. HPV, if you're sexually active, if you've had more than a handful of sex partners you've probably been exposed to already, it, hopefully you're young enough that you've been, you were vaccinated, and herpes in most cases is not that big a deal. So allowing your husband to be who he is, to be bi, and not just bi, but also bi and sexually active with other men, that does come bundled with a higher risk of a sexually transmitted infection happening to him and happening to you. Not allowing your husband to express the side of his sexuality. Does that come with a risk? A lot of people look at a sex problem and think, if we can just get rid of the sex, we've gotten rid of the problem. But sex is powerful. And people want what they want and are going to get what they want in the end. And if you dam it up, you get catastrophes. You get dam breaks that <laughs> wipe away everything and it's their paths. And if you dam it up, you get catastrophes. You get catastrophic dam breaks. So you've got to find a way to channel it. So not allowing your husband to express this part of his sexuality, if he feels a desperate need to express this part of his sexuality, that carries risks too. Risks for your relationship. Risks that he may seek out sex in riskier ways and not tell you about it and abrogating your right to inform consent in the process, cheating on you. And that cheating could lead to a breakup, lead to a divorce. So yeah, there are risks to saying this can't happen and there are risks to allowing it. You have to make a personal decision about what level of risk you're willing to accept. I think the risks are low though for sexually transmitted infections, for the serious ones, for the really problematic ones. If indeed he is using condoms when he has sex, anal sex with other men, that's the convo you need to have with him. He says he's being safe. What does that mean? Practically and in the moment, what does that mean? There's a lot of pressure on guys who use condoms out there in gay and bi hookup land now to not use condoms because everybody's on prep and a lot of people who are infected are in treatment and have undetectable viral loads and undetectable equals uninfectious. We know that now. So there's a great deal of pressure to, to go condom-free because who needs them anymore because we've solved the HIV problem. And we have now, as I predicted, we would have a huge spike in sexually transmitted infections, the others, among gay and bi men. So that's something to talk about with him. Also, something to factor in, is he having a lot of sex with random guys or does he have a very special guest star? Does he have a friend? Does he have a buddy? That would lower the risk. For him and for you. So not just whether he's using condoms, but also with whom is he using them is part of the combo you need to have. Not with your friendly neighborhood sex advice podcaster, but with your husband. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old queer person who is newly poly. And I was just wondering, 
how if there's any tricks or tips on how to not compare my partners. I have been dating someone for a lot longer and that's we opened up the relationship and now I sort of have the issue where I'm comparing everyone else that I'm with to them. And I obviously don't want to do that and I want to be able to recognize it as what it is, which is getting all the love I need, but I just am having an issue and trouble, um, I guess, comparing the two of them, the two people that I'm seeing and sort of preferencing my primary partner over my newer one because I know them more. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Sophie Lucido Johnson is a writer and cartoonist whose work has been featured in The New Yorker, The Guardian, Jezebel, and elsewhere. And she wrote the book on Polly, or one of the books on Polly, a new book, Many Love, a memoir of polyamory and finding loves. Hey, Sophie, how are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you? Good. The first question anybody has, people have been looking at your book, it's on my desk uh, at work, and going, why is it many love and not many loves if it's a book about polyamory? Um, it's just sort of a play on the word. So it's, I, I think one of the coolest things about polyamory is it's like a mishmashed word from two different language sources, poly meaning many and amory meaning love, but one is Greek and one is Latin. So, you know, things so, sort of that don't match. And so it's a literal translation of both words, many love. Yeah. Right. I think that, um, I, I love that this word that we created, it doesn't quite make sense. <laughs> because what makes sense? It's, it's like love. Yeah, nothing, may, particularly relationships. Is there is there a relationship on earth that really, if you drill down, makes any fucking sense at all? For real. It's like the, dolphins have it figured out, but humans don't. <laughs> yeah, every relationship has contradictions. Every relationship has issues that can never be reconciled, that can only be papered over. I, I frequently like to say a relationship is a myth two people create together. It's a story that you're telling. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, um, and it's a, and it's a crazy thing. We all enter into these relationships and we're just signing up to get hurt. Um, that's the (laughs) best thing that could happen is that you get hurt and, or you die, right? It's one or the other. Yeah. And eventually both, both at once in the end. In my experience. Well, this is really dark. I didn't expect (laughs) to go here. Um, (laughs) Let's quickly tackle the, the caller's question, and then let's talk a little bit about the book. Uh, and congratulations. It's sure. a huge thing. And, and the book is terrific. Um, I read a whole bunch of it in the last couple of days, and I, and I think it's a really great window into this crazy, irrational world of polyamorous relationships as compared to the crazy, irrational world of monogamous relationships. They're all crazy, and right, everyone's right. irrational. Yeah, but, everything's nuts. <laughs> but this caller, 24 queer, newly poly, and is really struggling with comparing her partners. Uh-huh. She has two partners and uh-huh. she compares them to each other and that right. makes her uncomfortable. And it sounds from the tone of her voice, like it makes her unhappy. Yeah. She doesn't sound happy. Um, I like the question though. It's a hard one, but it, it's, it's deceptively hard, right? Because it's, um, it's like impossible not to compare people. We just compare everything. That's how we interact with the world around us. That's why we have things like comparing apples and oranges because we do compare apples and oranges. And I, I'm, you know, I, I, I think that's a good starting place for the caller's question. I, um, I have two cats and I compare them all the time. They're <laughs> really different. And it's obvious that they're really different. I mean, it's adorable that they're different. 
Um, and that's a, that's a good place to start. Another place to start might be thinking about children. Like it's really easy for a parent to say that they love their children equally, but in totally different ways. And it sounds like the caller kind of understands the theory of, you know, getting different things from different lovers. Um, but that she's uncomfortable with her, like the fact that she's preferencing one over the other, like one of them seems to uh, be more important to her than the other one. Well, and the one so she cites, wait, wait, the one she cites is more important yeah. or that she's preferencing is her primary partner. And she uses that term. Right. And that's not a term that everyone in Polyland embraces because there are certainly people in Polyland who have what they call non-hierarchical poly relationships where there right. isn't the couple and then their other partners. There are three partners or right. four partners and it's equal. I'm really glad you brought that up because I do think that there is sort of like this misconception that polyamory only looks that one way with primary partners and secondary and, and other kind of people stemming off. And there are so many other ways that it can look that it mm-hmm. feels like are sort of silenced by the the media because they're too con- complex and confusing. But yeah, she does say that she has a primary partner and that's the one that she's preferencing. And that seems to be the partner she had first. Right. Right. Um, that's that's what she said. And, so, depe- and depending yeah. on the agreement that you have with your partner caller, uh, if you guys are doing as many people do, we are the couple, we're the primary partners, and then right. there are other partners, you should be preferencing your primary partner. Right, exactly. Yeah, but it does sound like that's making her uncomfortable, which is making me wonder if she's really like looking for a primary partner kind of situation or if she's looking to kind of be in more of a um, relationship anarchy, lots of different partners sort of mm-hmm. situation. Also, another if I can throw another wrench into the works, like she sounds tor- she sounds tormented with just the tone of her voice. Yeah, she sounds oh unhappy. God. And and the inclination is to think, well, she's tormenting herself. It's possible she's mm-hmm. being tormented. And mm-hmm. there are certainly cases where there are people who are poly and open or open and poly. Open doesn't necessarily mean poly. Poly obviously can mean open, but there are closed poly relationships. Ah, it's so co- poly so complicated. Monogamy is so easy and simple. <laughs> poly so fucking complicated. Um, there are people who are in that sort of we are primary partners. We have other partners, secondary partners who uh-huh. the secondary partner objects to not being equal to the primary partner. And the secondary right. partner could be in this case, torturing this caller mm-hmm. and being like, you have to uh-huh. treat me as equal to your primary partner. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I'm right. going to feel cheated. I'm going to be unhappy. And she doesn't know how to roll that out with her primary partner, or whether she even wants to roll that out with her primary partner. I am of course speculating, but I'd like us to address this aspect of it as well. Yeah. I mean, I it really speaks to kind of where I would go with any, any poly like, question luckily like polyamory only has like one answer to every single question which is just you have to communicate a lot (laughs) that's it that's the only answer that there is it's funny that monogamy is the default setting for so many couples and then you know when you shift into polyamory there's literally no default setting for anything right yeah yes that's true um that's definitely true but i think i found in uh the most successful polyamorous relationships that I know of and the ones that have lasted the longest, you know, um, are people who are really good at talking to each other. Like it's just that sort of a prerequisite, you know, mm-hmm. but I think that if she, uh, so I think that if she is hoping to find, find out whether or not she wants to prioritize this new partner more then she should maybe dedicate some, time to spending just time with that person and, and, and deciding if that's really what she wants, you know, um, there's probably something about this person that she really likes. 
mm-hmm. that you call or really like. So engage with that thing. Uh, you know, be genuinely curious, be intentional about spending time with the person. And then, you know, take a step back and decide what you want that relationship to look like. And then, you know, it, then it becomes a conversation and everyone has to agree and that sucks, but everyone does have to agree. So if this new partner says, well, I want to be as special to you as your primary partner, and that's not how you're feeling, then that's not the right person for you to be in a relationship with. And that could be a deal breaker for your primary partner. Uh, another thing I want to address is, you know, we talk about, and we talked earlier on today's show about NRE, new relationship energy, and we usually talk about it in the context of, you know, one person watching their partner be kind of giddy in love with a new person and feeling right. threatened by that NRE. But sometimes it can be the person who's got the primary partner and the new partner who is misreading NRE because they're so infatuated and so in love with their brand new partner that they look at their old shoe of a partner and think, not as, <laughs> not as good, not as exciting. And it's just somebody who's new to polyamory, as this caller is, mm-hmm. misreading what NRE is about and feels like. Because it's not just the long-term partner watching somebody else, watching their partner fall in love with somebody else who can be freaked out by NRE. But it's also the newly poly person with the long-term partner experiencing NRE again, because they felt that for their partner 10 years ago when they met them, and thinking, oh my God, mm-hmm. this relationship with this new person is so much better than my relationship with my mm-hmm. long-term partner because it makes me feel all these things. And this person right. makes me feel all these things. And actually, you have to like slow your fucking roll and tell yourself... It's not that this person is magic in a way that my partner isn't. It's that this person is new. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's a really difficult thing to learn. And, you know, again, there are people who, you know, maybe are not cut out to be in long-term relationships because they're too addicted to the NRE. Like, that's that's the thing. And that's okay. It's a way to be in the world, for sure. It's something to know about yourself. Um, it can be pretty painful for other people in your life. But I think... For sure, uh, this caller, it sounds like um, she is, uh, it sounds like she's in a relationship that is satisfying for her, at least one relationship that's very satisfying for her. And uh, I don't think that it's problematic that she's comparing her partners. I think the problem is that she's feeling so, yeah, like you said, so tormented by it. And and if it's your secondary partner, if it's your new partner that's tormenting, you're going to have to get rid of that person. That would right. be my advice. You don't want to be in a relationship with somebody totally. who wants to, yeah. you know, you don't, you know, there are certainly cases out there in Polyland where two people used to be the couple, the primary partners, and they evolved toward a more everyone's equal kind of triad yeah. or, or quad even. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. never is it they evolved toward a triad at the point of a gun because the new person right, exactly. was flipping the tables over and demanding that the primary partners renegotiate to accommodate them. That doesn't, that never Mm -hmm. ends well for anybody. Polyamory is all about like keeping people, keeping relationships from having to fit inside of boxes. And so it it necessitates that we can't force our partners into boxes either, even to fit sort of our picture of how we think polyamory should look. Okay. I think we've examined this call from every potential angle. And I, I want to have some time to talk about your book. So you describe yourself as a a serial monogamist. And this is something, uh, you know, previously you had been a serial monogamist. Now you're a polyamorist. And this is something that I think freaks a lot of monogamous people out about people in open relationships or poly relationships that Mm -hmm. most people in open or poly relationships used to be monogamous, did monogamy. 
because everybody's supposed to. And so there's some sort mm-hmm. of like reaction a lot of monogamy, monogamous people have to non-monogamous people as if we're turncoats, as if we let down the side, <laughs> as if we betrayed them by wandering away. Yeah, definitely. I am. Um... A lot of those people are my relatives. <laughs> um, <laughs> I yeah, it seems like I think there's this sense of didn't you learn that you have to make a sacrifice for love? Like love requires a sacrifice, and you've decided you're not going to do that, and that's cheating. And I think um, a line I've been saying a lot lately is like, you, in love you choose your sacrifice. So if you choose to be monogamous, then the sacrifice you make is you don't get to love any, or you don't get to be with anyone else ever again for the rest of your life under the sort of conditions of your monogamous terms. Your polyamorous, you have to sacrifice your comfortable emotions. They like you have to go through some really unpleasant emotions and talk about a lot of things that aren't easy to talk about. Um, it's, it's a, and the sacrifices, I sacrifice my comfort in order to be honest with you so that you can trust me. It sounds unpleasant. When I write about a polyamorous relationship, uh, when I give advice about polyamory in my column or the Savage Love Letter of the Day, invariably people jump in and they say, it just sounds so like people who are not poly or not open say it's too exhausting. It sounds too complicated. Like, does it leave time in your life for anything else if you're constantly processing your relationship? Well, yes. One, yes, it does. I mean, you get to make your own priorities and your priorities <laughs> should be, you know, the people you love and the things you love to do. And, um, and but also I want to speak a little bit to that idea that discomfort should be always avoided. We have this like cultural aversion to anything that isn't pleasant. Like we just want everything to be pleasant all the time. And there's really no evidence that, I mean, look anywhere. There's no evidence that that is ever true. Um, And I sort of have this belief that, you know, unpleasantness and discomfort, that's a part of being alive and we should paradoxically grow comfortable with it. (laughs) sort of um, go go through it because when you can sit with an uncomfortable feeling, you know, you, you, uh, it's less scary. It just isn't as threatening. And um, so it's useful to practice. So the book, Many Love, it's a memoir, it's a treatise, it's a polyamory 101. How do you describe it for people? You cover a lot of ground. (laughs) I try not to. (laughs) Um, You try not to cover ground or you try not to explain it to people? I mean, it really depends on who I'm describing it for. Like, if it's someone I, like, am hoping to sleep with, it, I would say, this is a book about polyamory because I'm polyamorous. And I also drew all the pictures, full of pictures, because I like to draw and it has sexy parts. But if it was, like, my grandmother, I'd say, like, this is a book about love with anthropological data and many interviews about the evolution of relationship structures over time. <laughs> so, um <laughs> So it's a, it doesn't it doesn't fit nicely. I'll tell you that I did a lot of research for this book, and also um, I'm telling some stories, and there are drawings in it, and I haven't found like the category that that fits into yet. But I I think that's appropriate. It's a terrific read. I, I so enjoyed it. Full disclosure, you interviewed me for it. I'm in there a little bit. I know. It was great. You said some great things. If people are listening to your show, they might want to know that there's some like fun gossip about your relationship. Don't tell them that's not true. Say that it is true. <laughs> the only way to find out whether that's true or not is to get your hands on a copy of Many Love, A Memoir of Polyamory and Finding Loves. Came out in June from Sophie Lucido Johnson, author and illustrator. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today and tackling that way more complicated than I thought it would be at first question. And I, but I really enjoyed our convo. Thanks. I appreciate it. 
Hi, Dan, new listeners. Uh, my husband and I are a 20-year hetero-ish monogamish couple, and we have a 14-year-old nephew that when he was three, four, somewhere in that age, he came out to his parents. He said, I am gay. He had never had any input about that. We were in a very rural, highly Catholic, highly oppressive environment, and she didn't even know where the word came from and kind of squashed it. Well, he's 14, and all his best friends are girls, and he kind of eschews boys, um, and I don't care what he is. We super love everybody, but I just want to support him, and I was hoping you had some advice for me on how my husband and I can support him and let him know that we're allies and let him know that we're safe for him, even if home and other environments are not. So if you have any input for that, I would super appreciate it. If you live in the same community, make sure your nephew knows that he's always welcome in your house. Sometimes what the little queer kid needs most is a place to go hide, a place where they feel safe. And if his parents are the worst bullies in his life, and if he's being bullied at school or bullied on the street out in front of his house, having a place he can go where the bullying stops, where he feels safe and secure and respected and can exhale is really, really, really important. Queer kids need that space. I needed that space when I was 14, 15 years old, and I managed to find it. And for me, that space was the city of Chicago. I found that in museums and galleries and theaters and lakefront bike trails. I got out there and got away to places where I could exhale. This is a small rural community. There's probably not a lot of museums, probably not a giant lakefront bike trail, probably not a lot of theaters, probably not a lot of cafes for this kid to go hide in. Let him know. Make sure that he knows that he's always welcome to come to your house if you live in the same community just to hang out, to do his homework, to watch TV. He's always welcome for dinner. Whenever he wants to come to your place and chill, he can. If he doesn't live in your community, make sure that you're in contact with him on social media. Suggest to your sister and brother-in-law or brother and sister-in-law that their nephew can come stay with you in the summer for a couple of weeks sometime just to hang out, just to see the big city if you live in a big city. And then welcome him into your home and communicate to him then by your actions if he's not yet out, if he's not saying he's gay at 14 the way he said it at four. You can't demand that he tell you or demand that he come out to you until he's ready to. But make sure you lay out your life in front of him in such a way that he'll know without having to be told that when he wants to come out to you, he can. Have a few people over for a barbecue or dinner when he's a guest in your house. Make sure a few of those people are gay people. And so you can see that you interacting with your gay friends and know that you love your gay friends and will love, when he's ready to come out to you, your gay nephew too. But there's only so much that you can do. You can't kidnap him. There's no underground railroad, unfortunately, to spirit little 14-year-old gay boys out of the homes of bigoted family into other family, better family, that's going to love and support them. I hope he makes it through these years. These are tough times, 14, 15, 16, for the closeted queer kid in a rural community with bigoted parents. He's on his hero's journey. You can let him know that you are a person that he can rely on and confide in and a place that he can escape to during that journey. Hello, Dan. I am a 33-year-old straight male. I have been in a amazing relationship for the past six months with a woman I've known since we were kids. 
yesterday was her birthday and we went out drinking. Um, I caught her flirting and I called her out on it and I don't think it was a big deal, but we were, we were drinking pretty heavy and I got really angry about it. And, um, her friend came over to talk to me, but I turn around and there's a group of guys and they're all surrounding her and she's just dancing, which this is, it seems really out of character for her, but I lost my cool. I went over there and, uh, I plowed through the, the mess and, uh, I put my hands on her and, uh, you know, just under her, um, just under her neck where it meets the chest. I pulled her in and I said, uh, you're now single. And, uh, I pushed her like, bad aggressively. <sighs> that relationship's over. Uh, but I am, uh, I'm looking for a way to move past this. It's a day later. I've already signed up for therapy classes. I don't usually have problems like this. And maybe it's drinking or <sighs> she's not going to talk to me. And I pretty much I accepted that. And sucks, but um, I don't want to be that person. I'm damn disgusted that I was or am. I don't know. I'm all ears because I just I want to be a good man. I want to be a good guy. You worry that you're going to be that guy, that guy who abuses women, that violent boyfriend or husband. And I don't think that you're going to be that guy because those guys. Those guys who are that guy, their reaction when they violently assault their girlfriend and their girlfriend breaks up with them is typically not to seek out the help of a therapist. It's not to look at the amount of drinking they're doing and begin to ask themselves tough questions about whether they should be drinking at all. It's to continue to pursue the girlfriend. It's to go to the girlfriend and escalate the violence as all too often happens or go to the girlfriend and self-flagellate and tell her how terrible you feel and this isn't who you are and make flowery promises about how you'll change and manipulate the girlfriend because you feel so terrible about what you did into comforting you or the ex-girlfriend into comforting you and taking you back. And you didn't do that. That is a very good sign. That is a sign that there's hope for you. That you don't have to be that guy, that guy you were in that club that night. You don't have to continue to be that guy forever. You don't have to be that guy and you might not be that guy. You don't have to be or continue to be that guy you were in the club that night because you're going to get help. Not to win her back, not to woo her back. That is over. You shat that bed. You are not getting into therapy. You're not going to go take an anger management class. You're not going to, as I think you should, give up drinking to win her back. This is not a strategy. This is to repair yourself. So the next time you have a girlfriend, the next time you're in a relationship, married or partnered, and you're unhappy about something that your partner is doing, but you don't use your fists and you don't grab anybody by the throat, you use your words. Like I said, I have hope for you. You didn't do what that guy does in the wake of behaving like that guy. You didn't run after her. And you recognize that this shit is yours. That this is your problem. And that you have to for you, fix it, or it will screw up every relationship you will ever be in. So, 
get thee to that therapist, go get thee to an anger management class and get thee to whatever alcohol treatment program works for you. Some people that's AA. AA is a little magic sky friends for me, but it works for a lot of people. Maybe it'll work for you. A person can't self-correct without self-awareness. You sound self-aware. And I'm confident that with the help you are seeking, you can self-correct. Yeah, hey Dan. 30, early 30s, bisexual male living in Melbourne, Australia. I went back home maybe a couple of months ago, swiping away on Tinder. Cousin's girlfriend pops up there. At that time, they maybe or maybe were not broken up. Anyway, long story short, we're about to have a holiday together. The whole family is together. I haven't told anyone that I saw her on Tinder. I don't think it's a big deal, but from the small town that I'm from, they might think it is. So um, just wondering, like, the best way to go about it. Hit her up. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I'm thinking the keep your fucking mouth shut thought, the none of your goddamn business thought, that open relationships are a thing thought. Those are the thoughts I'm thinking and that your cousin's relationship isn't yours to manage. And you don't need to talk about it with her and you don't need to talk about it with him and you don't need to talk about it with anybody else. If she is on Tinder in her community, if she's on Tinder where she and your cousin live, I think the logical inference is that they're in an open relationship. Tinder is pretty public and a lot of people swipe on a lot of photographs. And what makes more sense? She's on Tinder risking everything because she wants to cheat on your cousin or she's on Tinder because it's okay with him because they're in an open relationship or maybe your cousin's a crazy cuckold. Who knows what their deal is? You don't. What we do know is that their deal is none of your fucking business. That's the thought that should be rattling around in your head right now. Hi, Dan. I'm a longtime listener. I'm a 27-year-old cisgendered female in a heterosexual marriage. I married him when I was 20. We started dating when I was 16. And he's the only person I've ever dated and the only person I have ever been with sexually. So we've been married for about seven years now. And we're actually looking at opening up our marriage. I think that I'm more polyamorous just because I actually have parents who are poly or my mom's poly and my dad doesn't really know what he is. And my husband feels the same way. He doesn't think that he has the emotional capacity or desire to have another intimate, like emotionally intimate relationship, but is all up for kind of this sexual swinging aspect of it. I don't want to go into this naively because we've both never been with other people. We've both only ever been with each other. Grew up in a small town where everybody just gets married young has kids and grows old and we're both kind of learning that that might not be for us it's definitely not the path that I think I'm meant for so you think that I'm naive thinking that if we open up our marriage that we'll be able to survive just because we've been together so long and our relationship yeah I mean it is what it is we love each other but it's starting to get to that point where you know sex is routine and kind of boring and I think we need to have some adventures and maybe discover ourselves a little more sexually because we both kind of only know what we've learned from each other. Do you think a marriage can survive one like ours where we've only ever been with each other to open up and explore more of an open dynamic? I definitely think a marriage can survive opening up even when two people have only ever been with each other. 
What I think you want, I think what you're asking for is a guarantee that your marriage will survive opening up. And I can't provide that to you. I don't know how this is going to play out. You need to have more conversations with your husband about how you bring openness into your marriage in a way that will hopefully enhance your connection to each other. You say, and one of the reasons I'm sure you're contemplating opening up your marriage is that the sex has gotten routine and the sex has gotten boring and you've only ever had sex with each other and you're interested and you're curious about not just sex with other people but also relationships and intimacy with other people and he is open to too curious about sex with other people, not so much intimacy. So how do you guys make this work for you? How do you guys bring a degree of openness into your relationship that doesn't pull you apart? Well, you're already a little bit apart from each other on the what you want. You want sex and intimacy. He's open to maybe just sex alone but not interested in intimacy. How does he feel about you having sex and intimacy with others? How's that going to work for him? Where is the overlap in your desires? And the overlap right now in your desires is sex with other people, not intimacy with other people. Looking at the Venn diagram of what's going on for the both of you right now, there's the overlap, sex. So I would encourage you at this stage, when you first open the relationship, to just go to that place of overlap in that Venn diagram where you're both on the same page and sex with other people. And if you wanted to enhance your marriage and enhance your sexual connection and bust you guys out of this routine and break you out of the boredom that you've begun to associate with each other and the rote nature of your sexual encounters and your intimacy, those first encounters, your first opening up should be an adventure that you two are on together, that it's about both of you, that you find other people that you can be with together. I'm talking three ways and four ways. I'm talking some sort of organized swinging adventure, going to a sex club together where the understanding, the premise for everyone in the room is this is about sex. This isn't necessarily about intimacy, that this is a very, very short-term relationship that people may be embarking on this evening with people who are not their spouses, but it's not a long-term relationship. It is a short-term relationship with the potential duration of 30 minutes, 45 minutes, maybe an hour and a half if you really go for it. And if the opening becomes fuel that you two are throwing on your fire or your embers, it will enhance your relationship. And I'm not just pulling this out of my ass. There is so much writing and, and research and data out there about how people in long-term committed relationships who open up, it often improves their sexual connection. So long as they open up in a thoughtful way where they are consciously making it about improving their relationship, they're bringing in things and bringing in other people that excite them both. There's something in it for both partners. And what often happens is when people do it that way, when they go for the overlap in that Venn diagram, what we both want, what works for us both, the sexual adventures that we can go on together as a couple that enhance our sexual relationship, you'll find yourself having sex with your partner in anticipation of those adventures. And it will be more exciting to have sex with your partner in anticipation of those adventures and in the aftermath of those adventures. And having those adventures together in a way that really demonstrates that you are my top priority and always will be, that can set you up for a little more of what you want down the road. The opportunity for you to be intimate with another person, to have a polyamorous relationship, even if your husband himself isn't poly, even if for him it's just sex, he'll get to a point where he is comfortable with the idea of you being with somebody else intimately 
because you've demonstrated to him over and over and over again, initially, as you began the process of opening up the relationship, that he was your top priority and that this is about the two of you together, even if occasionally one or the other or both of you are off with someone else. Hey, Dan. Um, I am 33, cisgendered, straight-ish female, and um, I've kind of got myself in kind of an anxious city right now. I've been dating a guy for about seven months, and it's been a really fantastic relationship. It's slowly built over time, like intimacy um, and openness and honestness, and we actually went through a couple of things about two months ago that really brought us closer together with being more open and honest about who we are in our relationship. And um, I opened up to him about an abortion that I had that ended my long-term relationship. This is a couple years ago. I didn't tell him that I was married to that person. And I actually told a lie. I said that um, he'd broken off our engagement twice. Part of that is true. He did break off our engagement twice before we ended up just eloping. And then when I got pregnant, it all went to shit. And um, we got divorced. I said we separated and then got divorced about a year later. So today he was kind of, or the other day he was joking around about asking me to marry him. And I started digging around online and I was like, okay, well, what, what are the steps you have to take to get remarried? Well, you do actually have to present a divorce decree. And I'm not particularly proud of the fact that I haven't told him that I was married. I really don't know why that was ever a block. I don't know why I told him, didn't tell him from the beginning. He's seen stuff with my married name on it and hasn't asked me about it, strangely. So I don't really know what to do. I don't think he's going to propose to me anytime soon. We've only been together for about seven months, but he's talking about it. He's thinking about it. I know I need to come clean. I don't know if you can tell on the call, but my voice is shaking because I'm just so nervous about this and thinking about having to actually do this. I mean, it was a big deal telling him about the circumstances of my abortion, but this is a potential like relationship killer. And there's been some other stuff that he's revealed to me that's been really big and I've revealed stuff to him that's been pretty big, but this feels almost insurmountable and I really, really, really don't know what to do. You're seven months into this relationship. It's a new relationship. You're not... 17 years and seven kids into this relationship. Just say it. Say that that relationship that I was in, that we've talked about that ended, that was actually a marriage. And I think you might know that because you've seen some things rattling around in my apartment with my married name on it. And he probably does know it and it's just waiting because he's not an idiot. Hopefully he's not an idiot. Hopefully you, like everybody else, looking for a partner with some common sense and good judgment, he knows most likely. And he's just hanging back and letting you disclose things about your life pre him on your timetable. So tell him if I'm wrong and he doesn't know, and he is offended and freaked out that you weren't completely transparent and proactively disclosing absolutely everything about your pre him life by the first month or third month or fourth month or fifth month or whatever his arbitrary cutoff might be. And he leaves. Well, then he's kind of nuts and good fucking riddance. He told you at that moment when he freaked out, if he freaks out, which I don't think he will, about the fact that you were married to this person that he already knows that you were in a relationship with before, that he's not someone you want to waste any more of your time on. But I don't think that's what you're going to learn about him. I think what it will reveal is that he's not an idiot. That's one of the reasons you like him and that he already knows. 
and share with him your anxiety, share with him your fear. And that you kick the can down the road a little and then it was seven months down the road and now you feel just very self-conscious about making this disclosure. And if he's the loving, decent guy that you believe him to be, he'll understand and he will comfort you in that moment and tell you that it's not a problem, that it took you a little while to feel comfortable and secure enough with him to really open up to him. And he should look at that moment of disclosure as as that, as you opening up to him, as your relationship stepping up to another level. And he should really look at that moment as a positive sign, as a good thing, as evidence that you're reaching the stage of the relationship where you're just putting all of your cards on the table. And you're not disclosing war crimes. You're not letting him know that there are 10 dead Boy Scouts under the floorboards of your house. You're sharing with him something that a lot of people have in their past, a failed relationship. A first marriage. It's not that big a deal. Tell him today. Hey, Dan. I think you missed the mark with the guy whose girlfriend doesn't initiate because she's submissive. Um, just another option for him is for her to let him know that she wants it by giving him some kind of signal. I mean, you know, like you could do. <laughs> Put a necktie on the door, whatever. Some, like, visual symbol that he will see and know she's into it. And then he can initiate because she might want to be desired, right? A lot of us chicks like that. And we want our partners to do the initiating because we want to feel desired. And so I can't imagine, um, I'm quite submissive and I'm usually in that posture. I can't imagine going and getting on my knees and asking for it because what if they say no? And you want your partner to be able to say no. So instead, let her tell him that she's horny and wanting it. And then maybe that'll, you know, then he can initiate or maybe they can find a way that like if that turned him on and it was a guarantee she was going to get some, I would say go for it. But if he's going to potentially say no, don't get her on her knees. That would just be humiliating. I'm calling regarding episode 610, the woman who's dating the autistic guy who's uh, bad in bed. I'm an autistic guy. Fortunately, I don't think I have his problem about being bad in bed. My partner seemed pretty happy. Having said that, uh, I've got a lot of experience with autism and one of the biggest things about dating somebody with autism is we're, we're really easy to communicate with, I think. Just use your words, be blunt, be honest. Just say, hey, I really like you and I want to help teach you how to satisfy me in bed as best as possible. Um, give him pointers, help, maybe be on top and, and take charge a little bit and show him what you want, teach him what you want. And I'll bet you he'll be more than happy to learn and be receptive to all your tips and tricks that you want him to perform on you. Hi, Dan. This is in response to episode 610, the question uh, from the guy who wanted his, or his partner wanted him to give her a porn star fucking. I just want to say that I recently got a porn star fucking from a guy's fingers. What's really great is that you can get on top of her and fuck her with your fingers just as you would use your cock for as long as, until your arm gets tired. And it looks to her like you're fucking her. So maybe give it a shot. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. If you like my political ranting at the top of every week's show, you will love me and Rich Smith and host Eli Sanders on Blabbermouth, the Strangers Weekly Politics and News Podcast. Get it wherever you get 
me wherever you get all the podcasts you're getting follow me on twitter at fake dan savage follow sophie lucido johnson on twitter at sophie lucido joe the savage Lovecast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and nancy we'll be back at you next week with an installment of savage Lovecast. thanks for downloading